Okay, starting over. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the interrelationship, the connectedness between the historical narratives and the prophetic message. And, and we looked at uh, kind of where we are as humanity with the idolatry of Israel representing and, and reflecting the idolatry of us, that we are idol worshipers. We follow after things. We pursue things that are not God. Uh, we put things in the place of God. We, we put things over God. We put things in our life and in our existence that um, really ultimately causes harm. And then we looked at God's plan in the midst of that historical setting, historical reality, in, in promising a coming king, one who would come who would change that standing, one who would come who would transform that situation, that circumstance. And today as we move into the prophets uh, as a whole, I want to look at the quality that makes that journey possible, that makes that reality a reality, that God is able to move us from a status of idolatry and self-interest and self-focus to a status of acknowledging Him as our King. And that quality, that reality is grace. Now, when you look at the prophets, um, the prophets present a lot of different pictures to us uh, along the way. We, we certainly see some, some passages that relate to judgment, God bringing judgment upon Israel and enacting His uh, corrective nature in their presence. But I want to argue this morning that one of the primary messages, one of the primary emphases of the prophets is grace. God moving in the midst of His people to to change them, to transform them, to to help them to see and understand more clearly who He is and who He desires them to be. And there are a lot of passages we can look at for this truth. You could look in Isaiah chapter 30. You could look in Jeremiah 29. All, all of these are, are great images of how God takes a, a sinful nation, a, a sinful people, and, and, and brings them to a great future. In fact, just about any prophetic message you can look at and you'll see uh, a, a very clear picture of grace. God acting on behalf of His people to, to bring them to a new status. But if I were to, to pinpoint one passage in particular that more vividly and directly uh, portrays the reality of God's grace and God's love and God's goodness, it'd have to be in the book of Hosea. So I'm going to ask you this morning to turn with me to Hosea. And we're going to be looking at the first three chapters in particular, uh, looking at uh, a passage that um, is somewhat shocking in some ways, uh, certainly um, bold and, and brash in, in other ways, uh, but is clearly and unequivocally a picture of, of God's grace and God's goodness. The, the whole narrative, the whole story starts in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, where it says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, you, you hear that command, and, and I, I don't know, I don't hear the word whoredom a whole lot you know, uh, used you know, uh, in our culture. But, I mean, he's basically saying, go take a woman who who sells herself for money and make her your wife. Go go take a woman who's willing to give herself to anybody, to any man, to any any reality, any circumstance, and marry her. 
Now, when you hear that, I have to imagine for most of us, our first question is, why on earth would God make such a command? That seems a little strange. In fact, this is probably, as I look back on, on my life as a Christian growing and, and learning so forth, this is probably the first passage in Scripture where I ever heard somebody question its authenticity. Okay, uh, it was a, it was, a, I was in junior high. My Sunday school teacher, uh, we were going through Hosea through. It was the the lesson that Lifeway or at that time, the Sunday school board had had picked, and we were going through it. He says, he said, I don't believe God actually told Hosea to do this. And I'm sitting there, you know, just a young junior higher, like, okay, <laughs> why? He he believed that this undermined God's holiness. God's righteousness, that God would make such a command. Go marry a prostitute is what God tells his, pro his prophet to do here. And, and it, it, it is, it's shocking. It's a command that just goes against so many of our sensibilities in the church. You know, so many of our perspectives of what is good and what's right and, and all these things. We, we, we're, we're so bound by so many cultural norms and so many cultural ideas and so forth that when we hear something like this, we, we push back against it. And, and I just wanted to say today, number one, I do think God told Jose to do this, just to clarify that. But number two, I think God did it because it's shocking. He's ministering to, he's, he's trying to reach to uh, a, a people, the northern kingdom of Israel, that's who Jose preached to. Okay, um, This is probably about 740 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel will be destroyed in 722, so we're about 20 years out from their destruction. They're right there on the verge of non-existence, and God is trying to break through and say it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to go that direction. There's a chance for you to, to change course. There's a chance for you to, to stave off that destruction. There's a chance for you not to enter into non-existence. And when a people are, are so determined to reject God, so determined to, to turn away from His ways, sometimes it takes something shocking to shake them up, to, to get them to see this is serious. That this is a big deal. This is important. This is your future. This is your eternity that we're talking about here. I believe what we have here is is what scholars call a prophetic sign. And prophetic signs were, were enacted sermons. They were, they were things that the prophet would do, the prophet would carry out to, to say something really bold, something dramatic. You know, Instead of just saying the words, the prophet actually lived them out. And you see several examples of this throughout Scripture. You see Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 20 walking around naked for, for three years. That's kind of shocking. You don't really think of a prophet doing that, do you? Uh, you? You see Ezekiel in his house ripping out a, a wall, not to renovate or not to redecorate, but just so he could crawl through it to illustrate to Israel that that's how they're going to be trying to escape Jerusalem. You, you see them doing all sorts of weird things. Jeremiah burying a pot, some, some linen cloth, and then unburying it later to, to illustrate things. And God telling Hosea, to go marry a wife who's a prostitute. 
an adulteress, a, a woman who's sexually immoral. Why? Because he wants to wake Israel up to their adulterous ways, to their sinful attitudes. He wants them to see, he wants us to see that the life we live of idolatry, the life we live of, of, of rebellion and rejection of God is a life that leads to destruction. Let's look at the impact of sin as it, as it plays out here uh, in Hosea chapter 1. Immediately following uh, this, this command, you, you have uh, several children born. It talks in verse 3 of, and 4 of the, the first one, a, a son named Jezreel. Jezreel uh, is, a, is a word, it's a name that has two meanings. It can mean God plants or God scatters. Okay, and, and that makes sense. You can see if you think about how they planted, how they how they planted their seed, it makes sense that the word would mean that the same thing. Uh, Jesus in the parable of the, the sower tell, says what? He, he talks about the man going and spreading the seed everywhere. Okay, he's doing what? He's scattering the seed, he's planting it. Okay, and so Jezreel means God plants or God scatters. But those two meanings kind of have two different emphases, don't they? God plants, man, that sounds good. God's planted me here. I'm going to grow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn. I'm going to prosper. I'm going to do all these things. But if you say God scatters, you're thinking, uh-oh. You know, he's, he's, he's spreading me out here he's, he, to the winds, and, and, you know, I don't really have a, a location here. And Hosea plays off those two meanings. He says the, the Israel that God had planted is now going to be scattered. Okay. Then he has a, a, another child, at this time a daughter, and he says, I want you to name her Loruhamah. Now, Loruhamah means no compassion. Lo is the Hebrew word for no, and then Ruhamah is compassion. No compassion. Those on whom I've had compassion in the past, I'm no longer going to have compassion for. And then the third child Another son, I want you to name him Loami, which means not my people, or more figuratively, not mine. Now imagine a child being born named not mine. It's a pretty uh, dramatic set of events. It's, it's judgment that God's playing out here, and it, it's judgment and it's an expression because of the impact of sin. And we, we see some, some, some truth here in this, in this reality. First of all, we see that the first thing sin does is it breaks a once beautiful relationship. Part of what God is getting at here with Hosea, and he's going to highlight it later, is that God and Israel once were close. They were once connected. Hosea 11.1 out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay. There, was, there was a bond there. There was a relationship here. Remember when we were back in, in Exodus a, a few weeks ago, Exodus chapter 19. All the earth is mine, but you're my special possession. You're, you're, you're my special people. I've set you apart to be a kingdom of priests. I've set you apart to, to be a distinctive, special gift to the world. 
And you have that, that beautiful image of that relationship, of that connection. But then Hosea 11.1 says, goes on to say, but the more I chased you, the more you ran away. Israel rebelled. But as we've gone through the scriptures, as we've gone through the, the narratives and the stories, we've seen that very clearly. Joshua, especially in Judges. The idolatry of the kings. Israel rejected God. A relationship that used to be close and intimate and special is now broken. It's a picture of humanity as well. Creation starts, God creates. We talked about how when it came time to create humanity, you have that, that threefold statement, in his image he created them. Three times it makes that statement. Three times it emphasizes that we were made in God's image. We were made for special relationship with him. We were made for that connection. And it was beautiful. And it was wonderful. It was, we were, we were where we were supposed to be. And then what? We rebelled. We rejected his good gifts. We rejected his great provision. We said we can do better. And we walked away. And the relationship is broken. Sin breaks beautiful relationships. I've seen it in couples where one or both gets enamored with somebody else or something else. Men get enslaved to pornography. Women get in emotional affairs with, with other individuals or physical affairs with other individuals. It, it happens from both sides. And that sin does what? It breaks that once beautiful relationship. That marriage that started out with so much promise and so much hope and so much love, so much joy, becomes damaged and, and hurt and, and broken. Friendships are hurt when one friend betrays another or ignores another. Parent-child relationships, when rebellion or, or abuse or, or other things come into that, the, 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 the status that was once present where that, that parent held that child and there was that, that connection, that love, and that excitement, it's just gone because of the rebellion that's creeped into that or the abuse that's creeped into that relationship. Sin breaks relationships. Sin hurts. Sin is deadly. You see that in the narrative here of Hosea. The wife, she's a, a woman of promiscuity, a woman of adultery, a woman of prostitution. The picture of marriage that and all that marriage is supposed to be becomes a picture of brokenness. Sin also produces illegitimate offspring. I want you to notice as you work through chapter 1 here uh, how Hosea phrases some things. He says, with the first one, with the first child in verse 3, so he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
Verse 6, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The language there is still connective, but there's a little bit of distancing that's going that's taking place. But then by the time you get to verse 8, after Gomer had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. No connection at all. There's not even an, an again this time. The text seems to distance Hosea from the fatherhood of the children as they progress. She bore him a son, Jezreel. But by the time you get to Loami, she just bore a son. She's, she's had a boy. The text is hinting at it, suggesting that, especially with the name Loami, not mine, suggesting what? That that third child probably was not even Hosea's child. Wasn't from them coming together as a married couple. And that's what sin does. Over time, it begins to produce illegitimate offspring. You see it in the church. You see it in families where, where <laughs> parents not committed to, not walking in, not following through the, the, the past that God's put before us. The result is, is children that, that are not connected, that, that could not care less about God and, and His ways and His will and His desires. It happens spiritually in a church where members become more interested in themselves and and in their own focus, and, and in their own desires, and their own plans for the building and for the church and so forth, so that you end up with people who are sitting in the seats who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're there because it's the popular place to be, or it's the great place to be, or it's the fun place to be, or it's, it's you know just the, the traditional place to be. But there's no real relationship there. Sin causes damage in such a way. And then third, sin leaves us destitute. Leaves us without a future. As you move into chapter 2, you, you see this played out. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. She, she's found herself in a place, Gomer has found herself in a place where she has walked away, where she has rejected her relationship with Hosea so many times, so many dramatic ways, that now there's no connection at all, and she is destitute. She is enslaved. In fact, verse 2 of chapter 3 says, I bought her, which tells us what? She is a woman who had fallen into enslavement. She had to be purchased to be brought back. And that's where sin leaves us. It leaves us destitute. It leaves us without hope. It leaves us without a future. It leaves us without direction and purpose and meaning. When our relationships are broken, when, when our, our understanding of God is illegitimate, when our perspectives are of, of such a nature that, that we don't even see the truth anymore, we find ourselves destitute, lost, and hurting. Now, if that were the whole of this message, this would be among the saddest, most tragic narratives of, of all of Scripture. If we found ourselves looking at this passage and, and only seeing a people who were once planted, scattered, a people who were 
not receiving compassion of people who were not, who did not belong to God, and, and a, a mother, a, a, a picture of Israel who was completely destitute, we would be reading a tragedy of unspoken proportions. But in the midst of such rebellion, in the midst of such rejection of God, God speaks a word of grace. He speaks a word of healing. And we see the power of grace played out. We see God moving in miraculous ways. It starts with uh, the children in chapter 2 and moves to the woman in chapter 3. And the first thing we see there in, in chapter 3 is that God unimaginably restores us. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Then, then God said to me, Go again. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man and who is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Go get her. She's abandoned you. She's enslaved now. Probably a, 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 a vow to Baal that she had to fulfill. Or perhaps debt of some sort that, that grew out of her life as a prostitute. In any case, she has completely abandoned the family at this point. And God says to Hosea, go get her. But don't just go get her. What's he say there? Notice, notice the, the addition of the word love. Love her. Love her. And you have Hosea doing just that. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver five bushels of barley, and I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. Renewed the relationship. He restored the connection, even better than it was before. Because there's not a return to the former life that she uh, is living here. There, there's no hint of that. There's no expression of that. It's a full, total restoration of her status here. How unimaginable. How unthinkable. I mean, put yourself in Hosea's shoes. You married this woman. You, you, you provided for this woman. She's cheated on you. She's left you for another. She's left you for a whole different lifestyle. She's totally rejected all the things that matter to you, all the things that define who you are as a prophet of God and, and those sorts of things. She, she's turned away from you. And you go back and you love her. And you restore her. That's what God does for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though we had rejected him, though we had abandoned him, though we were chasing after other gods and other loves and other commitments, he has come and he has loved us. 
power of grace makes that which is illegitimate legitimate. In chapter 2, talking about the children, talking about what God wants to do through these children, through through these ones who follow. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, I want you to rename the children. I want Jezreel to now be emphasized as a planting. And let's go ahead and let's remove the loaves from Ruhamah and Ami's name so that they are now named Compassion and My People. Let's change their status. Let's make this child who's, who's not mine, mine. Let's make this one who's, who's a walking picture of my wife's Rejection of me. A walking testimony of my grace for her and for him. God makes those of us who are illegitimate, which is all of us, legitimate. To those who were formerly called my enemies, God says, I now call you my sons and daughters. You're mine. You have a place. You have a purpose. And because of these things, you have a future. God here highlights this future for, for His people, this, this future, this, this hope for a new direction a new relationship, one that will ultimately play out with the giving of His Son and the grace that's shown there on the cross. Grace has a power. Whereas we were destitute, we have a future. Whereas we were illegitimate, we're legitimate. Whereas we had a broken relationship, we have a restored relationship. That's grace. That's the wonder of it. That's the the power of it. That in and of itself should instill in us a, a, a desire to, to proclaim its amazingness. But beyond the power of grace, we also need to acknowledge the cost of grace. There is a cost involved. First of all, it's, it's born from a deep love. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but will have eternal life. He so loved us. Why? I'm not worthy of it. I remember as a kid, um, I was probably part of the first generation that had um, action figures. Okay. In particular, Star Wars action figures were the thing. We had to have them all. 
and I had a friend who, who had his collection. And he had, he had one in, in particular that, that he just loved. It was, it was his actual figure of Chewbacca. If you don't know who Chewbacca is, don't worry about it. It's a character in Star Wars. Okay. And he carried that action figure everywhere. So much so that the, the brown and, the, and the, the paint and so forth was coming off and the, the plastic was kind of peeling away at the nose. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was an ugly looking action figure. I'm telling you. Oh, but he loved it. And he came home one day from school and his mom had thrown it out. She had been cleaning up his room and she saw it and how nappy and ratty and awful it was. She's like, he can't possibly want that anymore. She threw it out. As she saw it, it was worthless. And his response and crying and so forth, but I loved it. I know what it looked like, but I loved it. And he went and he actually, she had actually thrown the bag that it was in already into the dumpster out back. We had a community dumpster and she thrown it in there and he went and he dug through that garbage to find that actual figure. It was special to him. I didn't understand it. Once it was in the garbage, I was like, it's gone. But he loved it. He had an attachment to it. And as I reflect on that, I reflect upon God's love for me. Because in my sinfulness, I'm, I'm ratty. And I'm disfigured. And I'm nothing wonderful or attractive or anything like that. I am, as the old hymnist would say, I'm a worm. But God loves me. I'm special to him. And you're special to him. He loves you. And he didn't go digging through the garbage for you. He went to the cross for you. He left the glory of heaven to come dwell among us, the garbage, to rescue us. That's a, there's a cost there. Grace also it meets us where we are. You see Hosea going to her, going and, and, and finding her. He, he didn't wait for her to come to him. She wasn't going to come to him. She was enslaved. She had, she had no capacity to come to him. He had to go to her. He had to seek her out. And that's what God does for us. He meets us where we are. He sees us as more than damaged goods. One of my one of my favorite preachers that I, I like to listen to. I don't agree with everything. He's he's a Calvinist, so he and I don't see eye to eye on many things. But one of my favorite preachers is, is Matt Chandler, and, and Matt Chandler tells a story of when he was first starting out in ministry. He was he was he was trying to witness to this young woman who had led a fairly promiscuous life, a 
away from God. She didn't know God. She had no connection with God, wasn't really committed to God and so forth. But he was befriending her, and he was walking with her, and he was trying to minister to her and show her the truth of, of God's grace and God's goodness. And one of their, their other friends uh, told her about a concert that was happening, and he said, you ought to come to the concert. And she said, okay, I'll go. And, and Matt was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. But he knew what kind of concert it was, and he knew that there was going to be a sermon and, and those sorts of things. And, but they went, and he sat there, and the sermon started with a preacher getting up, and he was holding a rose. And he smelled the rose, and he says, girls, I, I want you to imagine this is, this is who you are, you know, in your, in your status of purity, walking God, a beautiful rose. And then he takes the rose and he throws it out into the audience and says, I want you all to pass that around and smell the, you know, everybody smell the rose. And he then forget, began to, to preach a message about sexuality and, and looseness and those sorts of things. There, there was no grace in it. There was no, there was no understanding of the beauty of, of sex. There was no understanding of, of the fact that it's a gift from God. There was, there was nothing. It was just nothing but judgment. And finally, he gets to the, the end of the message, and he, he asks for the rose back, and he gets it. And of course, having been passed around by so many people and, and handled by so many people, it was broken, petals had fallen off, and the stem was broken, and all these other things. And, and he, he says, now who wants this rose? Nobody would want that rose. And that's where he left it. With just a challenge, don't. Do, don't have sex because it'll turn you into a rose like this. And Matt sat there angry and dying to scream out, Jesus wants that rose. Knowing that he had this young woman who was beside him who had lived that kind of life and this man had offered her no hope had told her basically nobody wanted her, nobody desired her, she had no future, no man was ever going to want to marry her because of the life she'd lived. Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants us. Though we're broken and ruined and used, Though we rejected him and walked away from him and ignored his ways, Jesus wants us. And we need to remember that, not just for ourselves, and it's important for ourselves to, to see that, that Christ meets you where you are and he, he wants you just as you are. You can't make yourself right first and then come to him. He, he meets you right where you're at. He'll do the transforming work. He'll meet you just as you are. But we need to remember that in our interactions with others as well. Because too many times as Christians, we get up on our high horses and we're so, we're so holy and we're so righteous and we're so all these things 
that we sometimes, instead of communicating the hope of Christ to people, we only communicate the condemnation of Christ to people. Jesus wants the broken. Jesus wants the lost. Jesus wants the prostitute. Jesus wants the person enslaved by same-sex desires. Jesus wants the person who is uh, entrapped by drug addiction. Jesus wants the person who is enslaved by pornography. Jesus wants the person who is following all sorts of faulty ways that do damage to themselves and to their loved ones. Jesus wants the lost. And we need to develop a heart that communicates that we want them too. But it comes at a cost. you got to meet them where they're at. They're not going to come in this building. They're not going to come to this place. We have to go to them. The cost of grace is costly to the giver. Notice the purchase price Hosea gives for her here. Verse 2 of chapter 3. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. Now, any historian, any, any expert in the time will say, that's actually not a lot of money. But it was a lot to Hosea. How do I know it was a lot to Hosea? Because he couldn't pay for it all in cash. He had to throw in some barley too. You get the picture that, that he goes to the place, whether it's a temple or some other situation, to, to pay for her. And he says, I want her back. And the guy's like, you want her? Yeah, whatever. No, no, I, I really want her back. And the guy says, it'll be 20 shekels. And Hosea's like, all I have is 15. 20 is my price. But I, I tell you what, I have some barley that I've saved up. I have some grain that I've saved up. Uh, I'll throw that in too. Okay, if you want her that bad, you're willing to throw away your, your food source, you're willing to give me that sort of stuff, throw that in, okay, fine, you can have it. Our salvation cost God the incarnation, leaving His glory to be born in a manger. Our salvation cost him his life on the cross. The most painful form of death ever devised by man. So painful was it that it gave birth to an expression of pain, excruciating. Comes from the word crucifixion. He did that for you. In his love and in his grace. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced that love, that grace, you've never experienced that, that kind of acceptance where Christ meets you where you're at and says, just, just come to me. Surrender to me. Give your life to me. He invites you today to that relationship, to that restoration, to that renewal, to that transformation. You can't earn it. 
You don't deserve it. Neither did I. That's why it's called grace. He's given it to us. Those of us who are here and who have accepted that, who have received that, let me just tell you, if grace costs God that much, don't take it cheaply. Don't take it for granted. He went to the cross for you. Don't you dare shrug that off as insignificant or unimportant in how you live your life and your desire to, to share your faith and your desire to, to reach out to others. Understand your value. Understand your worth. But understand that it wasn't just for you. God desires all to be saved. Everyone needs to hear the message. Everyone needs to know there's hope. Take that message with you as you go out into your lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you especially for your grace. Because without it, Lord, I would be lost. God, I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here who's never responded to that grace, never seen the worth you place on them, and the desire you have for them, God, I pray that you would move in their hearts right now and draw them, that they would respond by coming forward and giving their life to God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, myself. Help us, Lord, never to take that grace for granted. To never think of it as cheap or insignificant. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the life that you offer us. Help us, Lord, to surrender. Christ's name I pray. Amen.